good to be back again with you guys uh, this morning. If this is the first time or first time in a long time, I uh, just want to say welcome. We have been in a series. We started way back in August, and we're going to be wrapping up here pretty soon uh, at the end of June, but it's called The Big Story, where we're going through the big story of Scripture, all the major themes and stories that tie the one big story uh, of Scripture all together, Genesis to Revelation. So this morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 15. And if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and, and turn there this morning. If you don't, no big deal. I'm going to be putting some of these passages up online or up on the screen here so you can uh, follow along with this pretty easy. But um, this past week was rivalry week in baseball. I don't know if you guys, if any, but there's any other baseball fans out there if you caught this. I mean, Red Sox, Yankees were playing, and Red so- or, uh, Astros and Rangers were going at it this past week. Anybody fan of baseball? Anybody catch that this past week at all? Anybody? Okay, we've got a few people that care about that along with me. Anybody in here who is a, who is a fan uh, of a team that has a hated rivalry? All right, do you guys, any, okay, we've got a few schools in there. Anyone want to shout out what some of those things are? Who's your team and who's your rival? Anybody want to shout them out here? Any Ohio State fans in here? Ohio State, Michigan. There's a bunch of like heated things going on here in the first service. Ohio State, Michigan, and Notre Dame and USC and stuff like that, right? Um, any Yankee fans in here? Hate the Red Sox. No, and, and nobody wants to throw those out there. But uh, Oklahoma, UT, right? I was told in between services, like everybody hates UT. I don't know what the deal is about that, Brad, but it's like everybody, you're like, you got the Sooners are your rival, the Aggies are your rival, like everybody's your rival too. I always thought it was a and I, I go to a and I went to A&M, and uh, I've kind of quickly caught on, you know, if you didn't go to A&M, we pretty much annoy everyone else, right? And so, right, you're, you're kind of going, yes, we, we cannot stand you, and we love beating your football team every single year. Um, and so weird thing about me, so I went to Texas A&M, grew up in a, in a home that loved the Florida Gators. My dad was a, was a Gator. Everybody asked me, why do I cheer for the Gators since I went to Texas A&M? Why do you wear Gator socks every Sunday? I happen to do that all the time. Um, uh, dad was a Gator, and so I was raised in this home. Uh, I was raised in this home that uh, there was just rabid division in here. Dad went to the University of Florida. Mom went to Florida State University, the Seminoles, right? And so every Thanksgiving, they would play on the, the Saturday after Thanksgiving. The whole family would get together. And I'm not kidding, like the whole entire week was just massive trash talking. I mean, the cousins were there. They're trash talking the Gators. And it's like mom's whole side were Seminole fans. Dad's whole side were Gator fans. And we literally like all week long, I mean, we're wearing our Gator garb and like they're wearing their garden garnet and gold and those horrible colors and stuff. And like, I, I, we, we literally, the game day would happen and we would take the, these streamers and we would divide up our living room, tape down the living room, the gators on one side, Seminoles on another side. I mean, people had their flags. I mean, we painted the faces. I mean, we went absolute nuts on Thanksgiving kind of doing this whole thing. Even grandma got in the whole equation, right? Like she's talking trash too. She's like, Werfel's not a quarterback. I can throw it further than he can. I'm like, grandma, that's not even true at all. You're lying right now and that's not okay. He won the Heisman for Pete's, like he's okay, but uh, like that's what rivalries do though, right? Like they have a way of stirring up this passion inside of us and they love to divide a room. And it's not just with sports and stuff. Like I've noticed this thing inside of us, but there's something that's inside of us that loves to divide and if it means that we're going to be on the winning team. And again, it's not just sports or anything like that. It happens in the church all the time, Right? I mean, even in the church, like we're one body of Christ. You hear there's one universal body of Christ. In America alone, there's nearly 2,000 different Protestant denominations. Did you know that? I had no idea. But depending upon how you define denomination, there's even, some people will say a whole lot more than that, but 2,000 different Protestant denominations that seem to divide us. And when we talk about some of these things, we're not talking about frivolous matters, right? Like these are important things. Like you would not go to some of these churches. If we were to bust out 
rattlesnakes in our worship service this morning. Like that would matter to you, right? Like that, you're like going, okay, I'm not, I'm not down with that. I'm not going to be doing that thing. Like if we, started, uh, if we started preaching politics and endorsing candidates, and it wasn't the candidate that you loved, like that would matter to you, right? Like, I mean, we've got these different flavors. I mean, like, what if we went really, really high church around here, went strictly liturgical, suits and ties, I mean, very, very high church around here, like, that would matter to you. Or if we even went the complete opposite direction, complete seeker-sensitive, and kind of this, um, blew it up and made it all about this show and lights and smoke and, you know, concert-style everything, I mean, that would matter to you, right? I remember uh, even in July last year, I went to visit this church, and they brought out a, a Ferrari on stage, I had never seen anything like this in my life, but they brought out the Ferrari on stage and just had it up there like while the dude's preaching. And it was like, I don't remember exactly what it was, but I would imagine it has something to do with uh, the way that God values us or something like that. But I remember sitting there going, okay, this is not exactly my cup of tea here, right? Like the distinctives and these differences that are true among us, even within the body of Christ, they matter. And so the question that I'm wrestling with this morning and that I want to bring before us is, okay, so how in the world do you and I function as one when there's so many different things that can divide us? And that's what I think Acts chapter 15 is going to help us with this morning. So again, if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and turn there. Uh, we're going to jump into it. And I want to remind us kind of where we are in this big story once again. Every single time, I want to keep bringing us back. We have turned the page, New Testament to Old Testament, exact same God from the beginning to the end. We believe in one God who eternally exists in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. But he is one God who eternally exists in three distinct persons and exists that it happens that way from beginning all the way into the end. So it's exact same God, exact same mission. It is about God going and bringing his message of redemption and his redemptive plans to the ends of the earth. And he's largely doing it through his covenant people, the nation of Israel. All we're seeing here is a brand new covenant that is about to come into place. And it's exactly what's going to be taking place here in the book of Acts. Acts is a transitional book that is going to take us from life under the old covenant into life under the new covenant. Okay, and so that's what's going to be taking place here. And it's all going to be coming in as a response to the perfect life, death, and the resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you're with us last week, uh, we talked about one of the marks and one of the key distinctives of this new covenant, largely the indwelling Holy Spirit, which every believer now has. This is very different from the old covenant. The old covenant, the Holy Spirit would come temporarily. He would come upon you for a certain time, for a certain season, in order to empower you for certain gospel, God-glorifying works of ministry, and then he would leave. And you even hear the psalmist talks about this. He says, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. It's that famous song, and we sing that, take not thy Holy Spirit from me, because that's how it operated under the old covenant. He would come and go in order to empower you for certain God-glorifying acts at that time. Brand new mark of the new covenant. He is now permanent and indwelling every single believer. And so that was one of the major distinctions we talked about last week. Um, seven years later, in the book of Acts, again, like I said, transitional book, the, the, the benefits and the, and the distinctives of this new covenant are coming in over time. It's not all happening exactly at, at one point in time here, but it's going to be coming in over time. So seven years later, in Acts chapter 2, we're going to see a second distinctive here, uh, which is really, really important to understanding what we're about to get into here in chapter 15, and it largely has to do with the inclusion of the Gentiles in this new covenant. Okay, so you may remember this scene, Acts chapter 10, uh, the Holy Spirit gives Peter this vision to go and to find a Gentile leader named Cornelius to go and preach to him the gospel uh, so that he, his family, and the people that are around him, these other Gentiles, they may receive the Holy Spirit and then be saved. 
And so it's this whole chapter where it's exactly what takes place. Peter goes and he finds Cornelius. He preaches the gospel to these Gentiles. They come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit comes and he fills these Gentiles, thus affirming them and including them in this new covenant, which is very, very unique and very, very different. Fun little fact, uh, this past week, Kat's actually in Israel traveling around and she sent me pictures from Joppa where uh, this whole event took place, where where the, the Holy Spirit comes and descends upon the Gentiles. And I thought, I don't know if anybody else cares about that except for me, but I thought it was kind of fun. So, um, But what we're seeing there in chapter 10, like very unusual thing. Jews and Gentiles were not friends. Uh, even uh, Peter even acknowledges this at the beginning of his conversation with Cornelius. Check this out. Chapter 10, verse 28, he says, he says to them, he says, You're well aware that it is against our law for Jews to even associate with or visit Gentiles. Right? No offense, right? Uh, it's, it's against our law. And I want to make this distinction. Like, it's his law. It's the Jewish law. It's not God's law. God's law was always very missional. It was always go and reach the ends of the earth, ends of the earth with, uh, with the knowledge of who I am. But that was their law, and it was the divisiveness in which they lived. And so he says this. He says, but God has shown me that I shouldn't call anyone impure or unclean. It's a brand new day. Verse 34, he says the same thing. I now realize how true it is that God doesn't show favoritism. But he accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. And so this Gentile inclusion that's taking place here in chapter 10, like this is huge. And this is one of the major distinctives and differences between the Old Covenant uh, and the New. The Old Covenant was all about this relationship between God and the nation of Israel primarily. It was uh, Genesis 12 and 15, God's covenant with Abraham. He promises him three things. I'm going to give you land, meaning the geographic region, the geographic land in the nation of Israel. I'm going to give you people, meaning I'm going to give you the people of Israel, and I'm going to give you blessing. Like that's the Abrahamic covenant. And the Mosaic covenant is the exact same thing where God promises them and he gives uh, Moses this law on top of Mount Sinai and says, this is the covenant. This is the law uh, in which is going to facilitate our relationship. So you know how you can find blessing from me. And you, so you know how you can operate as a holy people of God with a holy God that you're representing. So the old covenant is all about God's relationship primarily with the nation of Israel and through that relationship then extending to the ends of the earth. But the new covenant's coming in. And with the new covenant comes the indwelling Holy Spirit and the creation essentially of a brand new type of people, which is going to include the Gentiles directly for the very, very first time. And with this inclusion is going to create all kinds of mess and all kinds of problems. Like I said, Jews and Gentiles didn't value the exact same things. They didn't eat the same way. They didn't worship the exact same way. They didn't value the same things. And now all of a sudden, one brand new body coming together trying to be one. And so 11 years after the fact, as this, as this day happens in chapter 10, the apostle Paul is going to go on his first missionary journey. And there's 11 years of going and sharing the gospel and this brand new church being brought into existence. And he's going to be traveling the world and he's going to be discovering, okay, we've got all of these problems as Jews and Gentiles are now trying to live together as one. How are we going to interact with these problems? And that's where we're going to pick it up here in chapter 15, verse 1. Here's what it says. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. It's a problem, right? And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should church. They were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees 
who had believed, they stood up saying, it's necessary to circumcise them, meaning the Gentiles, and to direct them to, to observe the law of Moses. And so what we're seeing here is the beginning of what's going to be known as the Jerusalem Council, where they're debating these issues. And the issue that's essentially at hand is this. Now that all of these Gentiles are being included in what was formerly this, this Jewish faith, uh, what do we do about the Mosaic law? Like, like, what do we do? We know that something's new, and we know that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus has brought in all this, this new and stuff going on, but what do we do in relationship to the Mosaic Law? Is it necessary for Gentiles who are coming in to observe the Mosaic Law and also be circumcised, which was a sign of the, the Old Covenant? Is it necessary for them to do those things in order to be saved? Or is salvation really by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, like the early church has already been preaching for 18 years at this point in time? And as we ask that question, like, we've got to understand, like, this is a major, major question because for the past 1,500 years, the Mosaic law has been the thing that has governed and facilitated this relationship between God and the nation of Israel. And so if you were a Gentile back in the day and you wanted to convert, uh, you recognized that the God of Israel was the one true God, which happened all the time throughout the Old Testament, kind of in spite of Israel by themselves wasn't very intentional all the times, but, but God had this way of glorifying himself through his people, the nation of Israel. You saw this even back when, um, when, when, when God is delivering his people from the Egyptians, the bondage of slavery. Remember Moses, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh, let my people go. Yeah, remember this whole story. And so like, this, this is coming about like, like after the 10 plagues and Pharaoh finally lets his people go. Uh, you see this whole wave of Egyptians that are there and they come to believe in Yahweh. They see his power and they see his glory working through the people of Israel and they decide to f- go away with the Israelites and convert. And so if you were a Gentile, meaning this non-Jew, and you wanted to convert, you recognize that the God of Israel is the one true God. You're not just converting in your mind and then going back to your Gentile way of life. You're essentially converting, but you're, you're converting to essentially Judaism in, in a sense, right? Like you're not only transitioning the object of your faith from whatever it previously was upon to the one true God, the God of Israel, uh, but you're essentially submitting to and recognizing the authority of the old covenant or the Mosaic law over you, meaning the Ten Commandments, all the different moral laws, all the ritual laws, the cleansing laws, and all of the different things that God had given Moses on top of Mount Sinai in order to observe. And when that actually took place, that was a pretty good deal because back in the day, we got to recognize like the old covenant and the, the Mosaic law was not bad at that time. We, we look back at it and we say, okay, in comparison to the new, uh, that was clearly lesser than. But back then, like this was the thing that facilitated blessing from God. We read about it, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15. He says it like this. Um, See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. This is God speaking to Moses on behalf of the Mosaic law. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience with him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and you will increase. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering to possess. And so applied in the right way, obedience to the Mosaic law and living under the old covenant was actually a pretty good thing, which would bring about God's blessing. It would facilitate a holy relationship with the holy God. However, when it's taken and applied in the wrong way, It had a tendency of being elevated too much to the point where that Mosaic law would become the thing by which one might be saved. 
And that's exactly the problem that we're going to be seeing here in this text, right? This is not about whether or not people should obey God and follow the things that he says are true to do and and to, to follow the teachings of Jesus or anything. This is all about what must you do in order to be saved. Do Gentiles need to be circumcised and obey the Mosaic law fully in order to be saved? Or is salvation truly by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? And before we just gloss past this too quickly, I just want to say that like, this has been the debate for about the past 2,000 years. I mean, for about 2,000 years, people have always been trying to add to the salvation message, this, this message that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, because there's something about that message that just seems a little bit too easy that it makes us uncomfortable. I'll never forget a number of years ago, I was teaching in this, this class with a bunch of students at the time. And uh, we were talking about the elements of the gospel. We were talking about how salvation is brought about, this idea of con- this, this concept of grace alone through faith alone. And one of the students piped up, and he's like, sounds like charity to me. Sounds like charity to me. He's like, he's like I don't take charity from anybody. My parents taught me that, that I'm supposed to repay everything that, that, that's ever given to me. I don't, I don't like this idea a whole lot. Another kid piped up, and he's like, yeah, it seems kind of cheap to me. He's like, I got Mormon friends, and when they graduate high school, they got to go on a two-year mission. And they got to go knock on doors and, and, and tell people about what they believe in order to be included in their church body. It seems a little cheap and seems a little easy. Another kid was like, yeah, I've got Muslim friends. And they have to pray five times a day and they have to observe Ramadan and all these different kinds of things. And like, there's a sense in which we're sitting there going, going, okay, this seems a little cheap and it seems a little bit easy. It was the exact same thing. I was doing refugee ministry here in Dallas, and I was working with this African refugee group that was brand new to Dallas at the time, and uh, they were battling with the whole concept of God's grace. And their question to me was not so much that, the cheapness of it, but their question and concern was about like, okay, if we start preaching this message that you are saved by God's grace through faith, then how in the world are we ever going to get people to, to, to obey him? Like if we're not threatening their salvation, then why would they obey God? Right? And so this is a problem that's, that's, that's persisted for 2,000 years. It's not just back there at the Jerusalem Council. I mean, it's still going today, which is why we're tempted to continue to add to the gospel. Salvation is by grace through faith, but it's faith plus a lifetime of good works that eventually pays back God's grace. Or it's by God's grace through faith plus baptism. Or it's salvation by God's grace plus faith plus King James Version only Bible. Or it's faith plus... Grace plus faith plus regular confession and penance for your sin, or faith plus speaking in tongues, or faith plus this, that, and the other, or faith plus circumcision and obedience to the Mosaic law, which is exactly what they're debating right here in Acts chapter 15. And so the apostles and the different elders, they come together and they gather in the Jerusalem council in order to come up uh, with what, what, what do we do with this theological problem. I want you to see how they answer this. In verse 7, Peter's going to answer this question. It's going to have sociological implications for our unity today. I want you to see this in verse 7. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and he said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in the same way as they also are. 
So in this one, little, this one little speech, I mean, Peter stands up and he essentially goes, okay, I've got two arguments for how we can know that salvation really is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Number one, the Holy Spirit came in response to genuine faith. I mean, that's what he's saying there in verse 7. He's essentially reminding them of exactly what happened when he went and preached the gospel to Cornelius and his buddies there back in chapter 10. He says, all I did was preach the gospel. That's the only thing that happened. I went back there. I preached the gospel. God, the Holy Spirit, who knows their heart and whether or not it's a genuine faith or faith kind of like the demons uh, that James talks about. The demons even acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, but they acknowledge that and they still shudder. So it's not a genuine faith. But but the Holy Spirit, who knows that this is a genuine faith, uh, says that the Holy Spirit came upon them and fell upon them. And so that's it. They didn't have to clean their lives up first. They didn't have to repent of bacon or anything like that. They didn't have to get circumcised immediately or anything like that. Like all he did was go and preach the gospel. They genuinely believed. And in response to their genuine faith, the Holy Spirit came and filled them from the very beginning. So that's argument number one. The second argument that he makes is, well, um, the law was never actually able to save in the first place. I mean, that's what he's saying here, like verse 10, verse, verse 10. Like, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? In other words, like the law was never able to save in the beginning. Like, we've, like if, if we're justified and righteous by the law, like, who could be righteous? Like, we've never been able to do this. Like, we failed at this. Hey, remember this church? Like, our history's not that fantastic. Like, uh, we failed. If you read the Old Testament, like, our fathers, they failed too. Like, we've never been able to attain righteousness through obedience to the law. Paul's going to say the same thing, Romans 3.20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. How many people are going to be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law? No one, no one is going to be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. In other words, what he's saying here is that one of the primary purposes of the old covenant and the old law, the Mosaic law, not the only purpose, but one of the major purposes was to expose the reality of our sin and our need for a Savior. Like, that's what it was there. It was like God knew that we were not going to be able to attain righteousness through obedience to the law. And what it does is it creates this, oh my gosh, I can't do it in myself. I need someone to come and do for me what I cannot do for myself. In that way, the Old Testament law functions a lot like an x-ray machine does. Have you guys ever had a, a broken arm, broken leg, anything like that lately? Not a whole lot of fun. If you had to go get an x-ray, it means you're probably in pretty bad shape. I've got a picture up here real quick. This is, um, just so we're clear, like that's not what, what an arm is supposed to look like, right? This guy was an old buddy of mine and... Um, it was a four-wheeler accident, and uh, I don't know what it is. Guys, we get on four-wheelers, and we say, I know that's a 90-degree angle on that mountain right there, but I'm going to try to take it. <laughs> and so like, you try to go up, and then it turn, tumbles backwards, and you start rolling down, and that thing crushes your arm. And so, but like, that's what an x-ray machine does, right? Uh, that's what an x-ray does. When it's held into the light, it's able to reveal that you've got a problem, but it's incapable of doing anything about your problem. Like, that's what it does. When held in the light, it shows you, hey, you've got something broken, but an x-ray can't do anything to fix it, right? Like, no matter how many times he goes in and he gets these pictures of his arm, like, it's never going to heal. The x-ray, that's not what it's for. And it's the exact same way with the law. Like, that's the purpose of the law is to let you know that things are broken so that you may understand that you need healing and that the healing is not there in the law, but your healing is actually outside of who you are. That is the point of the law, which is exactly why Peter says... Why in the world would we put this huge yoke upon all these different disciples that we were never able to bear? It was never the purpose of the law. Why would we make them hold to this thing that was never able to save in the first place? So he concludes in verse 11 and he says, But we believe 
We are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in the same way as they also are. Reformers are going to say it like this. They're going to say sola gratia, by grace alone, sola fide, through faith alone, solas Christus, in the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And church, this is where things get really, really messy for us, right? Because the salvation really is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then what that means is that God is going to be approving of people that you and I don't. Like what it means is that there's going to come a time when you may be walking around in heaven and you walk through those pearly gates and all of a sudden you're looking around and you're going, okay, there's all kinds of people here who never shared the same values that I shared here on earth. I mean, there's going to be people up there that you ripped apart on Facebook, right? I mean, there's going to be people that you blocked and that you avoided your entire life. I mean, there's going to be people that cut you off on 635 and cheered for the Redskins. <laughs> Maybe one or two, I don't know. Um, I mean, there's going to be people that came to faith early on in life and like they spent the entire lives walking with the Lord Jesus Christ. There's going to be people that spent their entire lives living for themselves and destroying other people's lives who are going to come to know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ very, very late in life and repentance like it never had time for you to really see it or own it or be able to appreciate it or for you to even give forgiveness. And the reality is that there's going to be all kinds of people that God approves of who we don't actually approve of. We're talking about every single tribe and tongue and nation represented. We're talking about criminals and saints and hypocrites inside of the church and liars too. We're talking about addicts and thieves and Republicans and Democrats and independents and Methodists and Baptists and Presbyterians and Lutherans and Charismatics and people that you like and people that you don't like. And, and, and here's the reality, like it's not just future tense, right? Like it's not just future tense heaven that we're talking about. Like, like Paul is going to say that right now because of what God has done for us in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he's actually made his family right now. Like it's not just future tense, hey, you're going to be at the exact same place at the same time, but there's something about what he has done on our behalf that actually makes us family right now. Galatians chapter 4, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship and daughtership because you are his sons. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. And so you're no longer a slave, but you're God's child. And since you're his child, God is also made you his heir. And John is going to say the same thing, but as many as have received him, to them he's given the right to be called children of God. In other words, church, like right now, that's who we are. We're family. We're, I mean, we're one, one giant, messy, messy family. And we've absolutely got like the, the crazy drunk uncle that like spouts off nonsense at the wedding. They get the microphone and like, I mean, we've, we've absolutely got that happening in the family. But at the end of the day, church, like we're family. It's who God has made us in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and through the indwelling Holy Spirit in the new covenant. It's who he's made us to be by his grace. He has adopted us all as sons and daughters. He has given us the Holy Spirit who loves to call out Abba, Father. And he has given us the right to be called children of God. And so who in the world are we to belittle what God has called beloved? I mean, it's what Philip Yancey calls the scandal of grace, the fact that, that God loves and approves of people that we never would. I mean, you, Jews, Gentiles, they were not friends. I mean, in this introductory conversation, like Peter goes to Cornelius and he's like, bro, this isn't even according to our law. I mean, he's, he's like, our law doesn't really allow us to talk or to have this conversation or even be together. Like, no offense, man, but like, we don't hang out. 
And so I get the desire to try to make everybody the same. What they're, what they're wanting to be is like, hey, we want everybody to look the same. We want everybody to think the same, to value the same, to be the same, to do all these different things. Like same is easy. We love same. Like ladies, can you imagine coming into a women's ministry and like there is no debate or division about homeschool, public school, private school, 10 kids, zero kids, working mom, stay-at-home mom, part-time mom. Like same would be awesome. Like, can you imagine if, like, we came in here and, like, we all valued and we all loved the same kind of music and worshiped the exact same way? Like, I dream about that all the time. Like, that would be incredible, right? <laughs> no worship wars or anything like that. Like, that would be absolutely incredible. I mean, can you imagine if, it, it, like, like, if we all had the exact same convictions about politics? Oh, my gosh, I'd dream for that one, too. Like, like, or, how, like or how to do church or how to spend money or or how to use or, or not use alcohol or some of these other different issues or things like that. Like, same is fantastic. It would be really, really easy. But with grace comes freedom. And with freedom comes diversity. And diversity can be really, really difficult to manage. And so Philip comes on the scene here. And I want you to see how he responds to this whole problem that's going on here in the church. Acts fifteen fifteen. He comes in and he affirms essentially what Peter has just said in this whole thing. And he kind of points back to prophecy. He says, the words of the prophets, they're in agreement with this. Salvation really is by grace alone through faith alone in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's what the prophets had to say. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things. Essentially, this is what the prophets predicted a long time ago. Verse 19, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning unto God. Isn't that an awesome response? It's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning over to God. In other words, let's not make it hard for anyone to actually hear about and understand the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things that's always confused me a lot is... um, the number of times I kind of hear the same story, uh, even around the church. Grown adults who've grown up in the church, been in the church their entire life, and they're in their 20s, 30s, or 40s, or something like that, and they come and say, you know what, that was the first time I ever heard the gospel at church. I've never understood that. It's the purpose of the church. I don't know what else we're saying if we're not elevating the gospel at every opportunity that we can. It's broken my heart. I've never really understood it a whole lot, but I think this might have something to do with it. Like when you grow up in a church or a home, and the only, other, the only thing that you ever hear about is everything that we're against. You know, things like don't drink and don't smoke and don't do, go to parties and don't look at porn and don't mess around with your girlfriend or boyfriend and don't listen to that kind of music and be home by 11 o'clock and don't watch R-rated movies and things like that. In other words, the church, like when all you hear about is law and all you hear about is work, 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 do this, don't do that kind of makes it hard to understand grace and that you're, that, that you're not actually approved by whether or not you do those certain things. And so the gospel may have actually been preached at some point in time, but the problem is that it got confused with all kinds of conflicting messages that were around them. And what James is saying here is, let's, let's, church, let's, let's not make it hard for people to understand the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ with all these conflicting messages. And as I say that, I I can understand the tension here because even as a pastor, like I long for our church body, Christians everywhere, self-included, to be obedient to the word of God. Like even as a a parent of a five-year-old kid, I want my kid to be a good kid, right? 
Like I want him to know right and wrong. I want him to choose right more often than not and all these different kinds of things. But here's the deal. Even more than being a good kid, I long to see my son love and fear and serve the Lord Jesus Christ all the days of his life. So in addition to teaching him the do's and the don'ts and the things, the basics of what it means to follow God and honor him with their life, I want to do everything that I possibly can to let him know that he is loved, 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 not because he's obedient, not because he's perfect, not because he does this and does not do this, but simply because he's my son. No other reason than that, that he is loved because he's my son. A long time ago, Kat started doing this thing with Caleb, and I loved it. I think it applies even to the church, but she would always ask him, she would say, Caleb, how much does mommy love you? And he'd always go, no matter what. She's like, that's exactly right, no matter what. I love it when you're obedient. I love it when you do these different things, but it's not the reason that I love you. I love you because you're my son, no matter what. And what James is saying is let's not make it difficult to understand the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why one of the things that we like to talk about around here is that in my hope and prayer for our church body is that we would be a church body that majors on the major and minors on the minors. And when we're talking about the majors, we're talking about the essentials unto salvation, the essentials of, of the gospel, the essentials of what it means to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're talking about the nature of God, the triune nature of a holy God. We're talking about the depravity of man, and we're talking about the perfect deity and humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ and his perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as a substitute for you and for me. We're talking about salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in that life, death, and resurrection. We're talking about the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture and the imminent return of of Christ, these majors, these essentials of what it means to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's what we want to be a people that major upon. And when we're talking about these things, we're not saying that the minors are not important. What we're saying is the minors are very, very important. They're matters of truth. They're, they're biblical issues. These are secondary issues. And we're not saying that there's never a time to, to, to not debate these kinds of things or to lead someone into matters of correction. But what we're saying is when we focus upon the majors and when we major upon the majors, it has a way of shaping our focus and reminding us of who he actually is and everything that he has done for us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in order to make us one brand new family. And when we remember those kinds of things, what, who he is and what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. It has a way of changing the tone of a debate so that people can actually receive truth and grace at the exact same time. And what James is saying is let's just, let's not make it hard for people to understand the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he keeps going here. James, like, he says something really, really funny here in, in verse 19. Check this out. Verse 19, he continues going on and he says, It's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times, and it's read in the synagogues on every single Sabbath. In other words, like we don't want to trouble those who are coming to faith with the law, but let's write to them and ask them to observe these things about the law. Right? Anybody else kind of see the irony in that? So let's not trouble them with the law except for these three or four things over here. We'll kind of elevate them a little bit. I like to call this the ministry of deference. It's the ministry of deference going on right here. I mean, it's this beautiful picture of what this diverse Christian community should actually look like. It's one person lovingly deferring to another person. It's one person considering another person as more important than myself. It's this ministry of deference. In matters of preference, I always choose or I try to choose deference. 
right? Like that's what we're talking about here. It's Jews that are deferring to Gentiles because they're not asking them to observe the entirety of the law, even though they know that it cannot save. They're not asking them to observe the entirety of the law. And it's, and it's Gentiles that are deferring to Jews because they're recognizing, hey, there's parts of my life that are actually in sin before God, things like sexual immorality, meat contaminated by idol worship. But there's also other things that I'm comfortable with that now my Jewish brothers and sisters are simply not comfortable with, like blood. Blood was seen as a thing that contaminated, and, um, and, and it was always a defilement. And so even though that's no longer the case at this point in time, they're sitting, simply looking there going, okay, that's an important issue to my Jewish brothers and sisters. Therefore, I'm going to choose deference in the matters of preference. By the way, like Paul models this exact same thing all throughout the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 9, check this out. Though I am free and I belong to no one. Though I am free... And I belong to no one else. I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. So as to win those who are under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might, have, I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Church, that is the ministry of deference. I'll never forget a number of years ago. I, I, I've shared a little bit about my buddy um, Don a number of times and I think I've intentionally left this story out for fear of my job. Um, and uh, I've told you a little bit about him. But years ago, he, I met him at a, a party at seminary. And uh, back in the heyday, he was the most popular gay male prostitute in all of Dallas. He was in his late 50s when I met him. And uh, we met at this party. He finds out I'm a minister. And he says, oh, we're not going to be friends then. Because last time I walked into church 25 years ago, I was told I deserved to be shot and killed and sent straight to hell. And I was like, yeah, that's going to that's gonna." That's going to dampen our relationship a little bit there. And uh, we developed a friendship afterwards. We went to breakfast that next morning. And and um, short time afterwards, he sort of had some sort of a conversion experience that was, it was very conflicting. It was very confusing. Um, as you can imagine, a lot of different things would be. He was pursuing the Lord, and he was growing, and he was all these different kinds of things. And there was a time early in that relationship where he calls me up one day, and he's like, hey, uh, today's actually my 25th sobriety birthday. And I'd love for you and your wife to come and celebrate with us. Come and meet us at this place in Oak Lawn called Hung Dingers. Okay, just think about that for a second. Not too long, though. And I was like, okay, um, we've never, that's not our typical date night place, right? I can't say, like, Kat and I were like, hey, let's go get a burger at Oak Lawn. And it's not a, that far, it's, it's, a, it's a restaurant club kind of environment. Everyone is dragging there. And uh, he's wanted to invite he and 20 of his friends. And he's like, I would love for you to come and meet them all and that kind of a thing. And I was like, okay. I processed this and I'm going, okay, there's nothing about this situation that's tempting that's actually leading anybody into sin or any stretch of the imagination. And I'm processing this whole thing. And I go, you know what? At the end of the day, I want the friendship. Like I want the relationship. I want to extend this conversation. I want to do everything that I could possibly, possibly do so that this group of people, my friend Don included and his partner at that time, that they may come to understand the grace and the power and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a ministry of deference, church. It's, it's not my place. It's not the place that we would choose to typically go. It's not necessarily our scene. However, in love for them, I want to go and I want to defer and say it's not my preference. It's not my 
It's not, my, it's not just about me. It's not just about what I personally like and am comfortable with. It's for the sake of the gospel that we may not make it difficult for people to come and see and understand the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's not put all of these other obstacles and these roadblocks in the middle of the way of things that are not majors. It's the ministry of deference. Church, can you think of any other relationship that God has given to us today that where, we, where it is normative to practice deference? It's marriage, right? It's absolutely the, the, this relationship of marriage which God gives to us. Like, like I remember when I married Kat, I didn't just sign a contract saying, okay, here's my 50% I'm bringing to the table. I'm going to do these things over here. You're going to do your 50%. If you're faithful to your end and I'm faithful to my end, then, hey, we're going to be pretty good together. Like, no, no, no. From, like, from the very beginning, we planned for that day when, when things may not go well. Like, from the very beginning, it's why we made a covenant before God that, that no matter what happens in our relationship, that we're going to be in it until the end. It's Ephesians 5, 21. Submit one to another. Wives, uh, to your husbands. Husbands, to, to your wives. Be willing to lay down your life for your spouse. It's love one another. Consider other people as more important than yourselves over and over and over again in sickness and in health for better or for worse, for richer or for seminary, or poorer. Um, like no matter what comes your way, like no matter the circumstances that are around you, it doesn't matter whether it's your preference or not, whether it's ideal or not, no matter what comes my way, I'm in it until the end. It's this ministry of deference. I'll never forget one of my heroes in the faith, uh, Dr. Greg Hatterberg. He was a professor at Dallas Seminary and I actually never knew him on a personal level, but I knew his testimony loud and strong. His wife, Lisa, early in the days, and I think this is probably before I ever got into to school at that time, but she, came, she got MS. If you've ever been around MS, you know how debilitating of a disease that actually is. And Greg would just, you would see him wheel Lisa around campus all the time, and they would get to, he, he would want her to be in classroom settings with him. You just watch him pick up his wife and carry her up these stairs. And like you'd see him go to the lunch, the lunch room and he'd be feeding her. And, and he would brush her hair when it got out of, out of sorts and things of that nature. And like he was always with her and he was always deferring to her over and over and over again. I promise you, church, it's not, it's not my 15. Jews are deferring to Gentiles wherever they can. And Gentiles are deferring to Jews wherever they can. And it's all for the sake of the gospel. I want to wrap this up. At the end of the chapter, the apostles, they write this letter, and they're giving this verdict that salvation really is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they ask the Gentile converts to lovingly defer on a few things for the sake of their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. And they ask their Jewish brothers and sisters to lovingly defer on a few other things. They gather the congregation together at the end, and they read them this letter, this kind of, here's everything that took place at the Jerusalem Council. And everybody's there in this giant crowd. I can picture a full auditorium or wherever it may be. And in verse 31, it simply says this. When they read the letter, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. I bet they did. Like Jews coming together as one with the Gentiles. And Gentiles sitting in the room, and they're, they're together as one with the Jews. Everybody included in one brand new family as a result of the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his blood shed for all, his indwelling Holy Spirit, which commonly binds us all and makes us into one brand new family. Church, the gospel is incredible news. Like you really can be saved by God's grace through faith. 
and nothing else in the genuine faith and nothing else in the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that, that may mean that our gathering gets messy from time to time. Because what it means is that God is going to approve of people that you and I may not right now. But in the middle of all of that, like we had this opportunity to practice this ministry of deference over and over and over again. That we may be a people that majors on the majors and minors on the minors. That we may not make it difficult for people to see and understand the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Church, may that be true of us. I'm going to invite you to pray with me.